So we've had quite a few mentions of family this morning um, from Victoria's story about grumbling at Jewel to uh, Esteban's prayer. Um, and I had Haven come up here and, and read, um, not be just because she was easy to ask, because I just was sitting next to her in the dining room and I said, hey, could you read scripture? But because she is my daughter and I wanted her to read in a sense, to give you the emotional tone of our scripture this morning. Um, what we're going to get into this morning is perhaps Paul's most intimate, loving, tender portion in all of his writings. And so I'm glad, as the Lord would have it, that Victoria and Esteban have spoken and prayed the way that they did because it helps us to understand this fullness of family that God intends for us to experience in him as our father. And I hope that you get that this morning. I hope that you not just hear and understand, but this morning that you feel that you are affected by the reality of God and his gospel. This morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The passage is verses 7 through 12. It's on page 986. I'd really encourage you to pull out your Bibles and, and go there if you can. Page 986 again. We'll probably also jump back a little bit into Haven's passage in Acts chapter 17, but you can find that a little bit later on. Back in 2012, uh, Nat and I were celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary. And we had the opportunity to go down south somewhere and to sit on a beach and have dinner on that beach. And that dinner had a few courses to it, which allowed it to last for a long time, especially because we didn't have kids sitting at the table with us. It allowed it to last for a long time. And as we were celebrating our 10th anniversary, what we decided to do was to just say, let's just talk about what's gone on over these 10 years. What we have experienced what the seasons have been, what the circumstances have been. Who are these four yahoos that run around our house every day? What have we experienced? And the beautiful thing is, you know, you look back and of course you have the, the birthdays of your kids and the months leading up to those days. We've been here that entire time. Um, so we were able to put a lot of signposts in our story that had to do with you and with this place, with this church. Um, and the cool thing was we kind of had those signposts as we're working our way through the 10 years. We weren't going from diaries or journals. We weren't doing anything like that. We were just asking the Lord really in our conversation to help us see some things, remember some things. And that dinner was long enough that we were able to see those signposts and then things became more clear. He brought recollections back, things we hadn't thought about in a long, long time because we had the time to just sit 
and think and talk and remember. And it was a beautiful time of celebrating our marriage, but even more greatly than that, celebrating God's faithfulness to us and his faithfulness to us in that time. And um, I bring that up, again, to kind of help maybe stir the emotional pot a little bit, but also to bring up something that we're going to be talking through today a little bit too. The interplay between the objective and the subjective. Okay, so objective is something you measure, something that is true, something that is tangible. The subjective, those are our experiences, what we feel, what we sense. Okay? Well, to take that story that I just told, you know, we, we were expressing our feelings, our, what we've experienced over those last 10 years at that point. It's 15 now. Um, we were expressing what we had experienced, but those experiences and the emotions therein wouldn't have actually been all that great, all that validated, if we did not have that one day on June 1st, 2002, when we were married. Okay? There's that objective reality and the interplay with the subjective, the objective and the subjective, the the things you know and the things you feel coming together. All right? Why do I lead in with this? Well, because we're kind of going to jump into that a little bit with Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, if you've been listening carefully over the last few weeks that Bill's been preaching here, you'll, you'll realize that Paul has been largely talking about things that happened in the past. He's been saying, this is what it was like when I was in Thessalonica, and this is what happened, this is what God did among you, but he's just kind of taking a stroll down memory lane, it would seem. He talks about being thankful for them and what God did among them. But something that I've been struggling with, admittedly, this week as I've been preparing for this morning is, why? Was he just kind of getting out the emotional picture book and paging his way through with the Thessalonians to get the warm and fuzzies? Was he somehow saying, this should just arouse us to worship? I think he was probably doing both of those things. Um, but a little bit more personally, he was reconnecting relationally with them. If you listen closely to what Haven, to what Haven was reading, the story in Acts 17 is that Paul was with the Thessalonians for three to four weeks. He preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. And the gospel had an impact. There were reverberations through that city. People came to faith in Christ. And then the rabble-rousers aroused a rabble, and they threw them out of the city. Just like that. They were torn, as Paul says later on in chapter 2. He says, we were torn away from you, brothers. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. In person, but not in heart. And we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. 
Paul was concerned that the Thessalonians, number one, had fallen away from the faith. They were taken so suddenly from them. He was concerned that the people that he had grown to love so incredibly well in three to four weeks, a pretty short time, but God had done an incredible work of uniting their hearts together, that these people had then fallen away from the faith. He was also concerned that they were maybe seeing him as an absent father, kind of a papa as a rolling stone. He laid his hat in Thessalonica, and then he just kept rolling along. That was not Paul. He was concerned for them. So he's, he's recalling these memories, these experiences, because he wanted to assure them of his relationship with them, that he truly loved them, which we'll get into that more in the coming weeks. And Paul was also caring for them. Um, when I say falling away from the faith, I don't mean like radically falling away from the faith because by this time he had actually received a notice from Timothy that they were staying strong in the faith, which is a good thing. But this Thessalonian church was in an interesting state. They were a healthy church on the outside. They were walking in holiness. They were also loving each other. Paul's going to encourage them to do that more and more later on in this book. But they had this nagging fear that they just couldn't shake. It was a fear that Paul was not allowed to address. He didn't have the chance to address it before he had to leave the city. And it was a fear that people that had died already, even though they were trusting Christ, would not actually be with Christ. They also had this nagging fear that Maybe Jesus already came back. Can you imagine what that would be like for them? To be in a city, it's a tough place to live, as Bill was telling us more about last week. Bombarded by other types of truths, other belief systems. The man who founded your church and was your spiritual father, in a sense, has left. And you're holding strong, you're holding to the gospel, but there's this nagging feeling that as you're seeing your spiritual brothers and sisters die, breathe their last breath, like, is this all in vain? Wasn't Christ supposed to come back by now? So Paul is caring for them. They were suffering on the inside, even though they were healthy on the outside. A couple other things, just really quick before we read the, the passage itself. I want to bring to you this main point. I, I think this is what Paul is trying to get in. I want to give it to you now so that you can read it and see it. The main point that I think we want to get today is that remembering your personal story in light of God's gospel story brings personal assurance and powerful witness. Your personal story in light of God's gospel story brings personal assurance and powerful witness. In other words, when you take all of what your life has entailed, all of the experiences that you have had, but then you understand it through the lens of the good news, 
what you get is a sure record of God's faithfulness to you and explosive testimony. Let me tell you one more thing before we read in the passage. There's a certain word that we find in 1 Thessalonians that's more concentrated than any other book of Paul's, any other letter of Paul's. It's the Greek word for you all know, oidate. The Greek word for you all know. It's found in the greatest concentration in this letter. And you all know how we use you all know. All right? You don't usually add the plural, even if we're talking to the group. You just say, you know? You know? That's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's taking them back experientially to what they together have experienced and saying, you know? You know. Because he's giving them that assurance of what they experienced together was valid. And they could bank on that experience as an assurance for where they were sitting right here as they're opening up this scroll and reading Paul's letter for the first time. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That word oidate, the, the um, second person plural of um, you know, you all know, is found nine times in this short letter. And we're actually going to see it two times in, three times actually, in this passage. Starts off with it. I'm going to start in actually verse 1, what Bill preached on last week, because it flows right into where we're going today. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Did you catch that? You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And here we get into today's passage. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom 
and glory. So again, the main idea, remembering your story in light of the gospel story of God brings personal assurance and powerful witness. What does Paul remember with Thessalonians in order to give them this assurance? Two things. The first thing is this. Paul and Silas gave them their very selves. They gave them themselves. How do we see this? Verse 7a. They didn't throw their weight around like infants. You're saying, I don't see the word infants there. You're right, you don't. Okay? That word gentle could be infants. So, here's the deal. Manuscripts sometimes have different things that happen in them. The word for infants and the word for gentle, there's one little word between the two. But usually when you look at a manuscript and you interpret it and then put it into English, you choose the more difficult understanding of the text. The ESV chooses the easier of the two. I happen to think that it's the more difficult of the two. All right? So I want you to read this, and I'm, I'm going to explain why I think this in a minute, okay? Read this, 7a. Chapter 2, 7a, it says, we were gentle among you. I think what it should actually say is, but we were infants among you. We were like infants with you. What Paul is trying to say is that when he and Silas were there, they could have thrown their weight around. As he had just said, they are apostles of Christ. They could have charged into the city and said, listen, We're apostles. We've seen the risen Christ. Listen up. They could have kicked all the hucksters to the curb. They could have did a spiritual beatdown on anybody else who opposed them. Instead, he said, we came with the gospel, and we were like babies. Innocent, without authority, weak. We wanted the gospel to speak. So first, when they came, as they gave them themselves by coming as infants. Second of all, and here's where this, uh, Paul puts a simile in here in, in the second half of verse 7. He says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I know it looks awkward in the English, but what he's trying to say, is he's, 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 it's almost like he's writing and he's saying, we were like infants among you. Wait. And we were also like nursing mothers. Lightning quick change in his thought. But that happens to us all the time. We're thinking about one thing and all of a sudden we're like, oh, yeah, and that too. That's what Paul is thinking. He said, we we came innocent. We just wanted to teach you the gospel. And we nursed you. We were like mothers. Why is that an important thing for him to say? Well, let me read it here. Like a nursing mother taking care of her children. The thing is, back then, most people with means, the birth mother did not nurse her children. You know what a wet nurse is? 
A wet nurse is someone who would nurse children who were not hers. Okay? Paul is saying here, we didn't hire any wet nurses. The gospel powerfully came to you. He tra God transformed your lives, chapter 1, with power and conviction. We could have then said, hey, off to the next city, we're rolling. No. Instead, we stayed. We nursed you with the spiritual milk of the gospel. We gave of ourselves as a mother gives of herself to her children. The gospel was literally flowing out of us to you. And it was our responsibility to nurse you spiritually ourselves. We did not abandon you. We stuck with you. Nursing is hard, people. I don't know from personal experience, but from very close second-hand experience, I know that nursing is hard. You know, Nat and I recounting our, I think this was part of our conversation on the beach, was that the three years after Simeon was born, the th not the three years, he, she, he did not nurse for three years. <laughs> the three months, the three months after Simeon was born were three of the hardest in our marriage. Because though Nat was the one that was nursing, I was the I was the one I was the one that was trying to get up with her to nurse. I was reading through Chronicles of Narnia aloud so that we would have something to keep our minds on something else be, besides the difficulty of nursing our firstborn. Okay? Nursing is hard, but it's a commitment that brings a bond between mother and child that not much else can make happen. That's what Paul is saying that he and Silas did. They didn't throw their weight around. They were like nursing mothers. Let's continue on here. Verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. Do you see there how Paul is saying, here's the intertwine between the subjective and the objective. We brought to you the gospel, but we shared with you our very selves. We experienced those three plus weeks with you together. But here's how desirous they had become of the Thessalonian church. This is how deep the Lord formed this love between Paul and Silas and the Thessalonians. Those words affectionately desirous, they're found on funerary inscriptions. They're very rare words. Very rare words. Gene Green in his commentary says, these words are found as funerary inscriptions that tell how the parents long for their deceased child. 
So the messenger's affectionate disposition toward the Thessalonians was an earnest longing for them as a parent would long for an absent child. Paul and Silas loved this church so much, they were longing for them, almost as if they were separated by death. We continue on, verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In Acts 17, where does Paul teach? In the synagogue on the Sabbaths. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is saying, he does not say that he didn't teach in the synagogues. I'm sure that he did. That was his way. But it says here, that they taught, they taught, they proclaimed the gospel of God while they worked. While they worked. They toiled day and night. And the, the implication is there that where a typical worker back then would work from sun up until sundown, they worked longer. They put in all the hours that they needed while they were maybe making their tents, Paul's stock and trade. Maybe it was there on the tent-making floor amidst all the other artisans and the day laborers and the manual workers that he began to explain, this is what the gospel is and this is what it means for you, even in your work. And day and night they toiled. Again, this is him, them giving themselves every moment of every day while they were with them for the purpose of forming the gospel in them. Let's continue. You are witnesses, verse 10, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Did you catch that? You are witnesses and God also. All of this that Paul is talking about is not just meant for the Thessalonians to remember, for the Thessalonians to be assured. All of this is he's saying, God was our witness as well. We did this under his gaze. We worked among you like this. We gave ourselves like this because it was the godly thing to do. It was part of his mission for us to come and give ourselves in this way to you. But what does he mean by holy and righteous and blameless? How, how did these define their conduct? Well, these terms, when they're used together, were meant to, they were used in other ways in the, in the early Greek too. They were meant not just to kind of be a broad description of, well, he was a good person, but specifically to say they were religiously holy, like they, they followed, this could also, it could have also been said of people that followed pagan gods, that they lived up to what their gods expected. So Paul is saying, with God as our witness, we lived among you, we worked among you, we gave ourselves to you as God expects. But these words also mean that we did our obligations, we performed our obligations as good citizens. Why was Paul concerned that they know this? Because if you remember from Acts 17, 
when the rabble rousers roused the rabble, they said that these men claim that there is another king. See, the gospel, when he was preaching it on the tent-making floor, talking about it with the laborers, with the artisans, with the craftsmen, they were beginning to see the way that the gospel, the one true God, was at odds with their polytheistic culture, a culture that believed in many gods, and oftentimes their certain trade would have one God that they worshipped of the pantheon of gods. So as Paul is bringing the gospel of God, and they're believing the gospel of God, yes, he is the truth. Their experience of the gospel began to weigh heavily in their workplace. They could no longer bow to the idol that their co-workers were bowing to. And so Paul wanted to make clear When I brought the gospel, I brought this earth-shattering good news that does have incredible, explosive implications into every area of life, including your workplace. But I did not come with some sort of political aim to somehow bring down the Roman government, to somehow throw out the Thessalonian rulers. We lived among you as good citizens. If you look at verse 12, like a father with his children, they exhorted them to do the same. Okay? So, Paul is saying, this is how we lived among you. This is what we taught you. Now go do the same. This whole idea of subjective and objective maybe makes you think of postmodernism and modernism where we're at today. Maybe it doesn't make you think of that. If it doesn't, that's okay. But I know for some of you, you struggle in the everyday thinking, I work with people that are utterly relativists. Or you might work in the hard sciences and say, I work with people that are incredibly modernist. They try to measure everything. Whereas the people at my job, they just feel everything. How do I walk in a world of those two extremes? Well, the first thing to recognize is that those two extremes actually are never true extremes. No one is ever a true postmodernist. Postmodernist, basically to sum that up, is somebody who says all truth is relative. Okay? The thing is that postmodernist, if they have bronchitis will not go to Target and look in the pest control section. Well, I just felt like taking a left when I came up the escalator and then another right. And lo and behold, there's Raid. Raid will probably work on my bronchitis. No, 
they take a right and they go to the pharmacy and understand those are the things that have been proven to work on bronchitis, medication. On the other hand, though, modernists would have you believe that everything that is true can be measured. Yet, they fall in love, don't they? They go by their gut, don't they? They appreciate poetry, don't they? So the thing is, you'll never find a person that is totally a modernist or totally a postmodernist. Everybody's just kind of a mesh in the middle. And let me hear, let me tell you, so are we. Because we're in that culture, and so that culture seeps into us. And so we want to measure stuff. We want certainty on things, but we also go with our gut. We also say, like, I feel like the Lord has been telling me this. And so it's a, it's a big mush in the middle is where most people live. But that's important to realize is that that's also where we live. And so we have to think through what we live. D.A. Carson says that the, the wise Christian, the wise Christian shouldn't be either. They shouldn't be looking to be a modernist or a postmodernist. There are things to accept and reject in both. Now, some of you are intrigued by this conversation. Others of you are saying, this has no bearing on my life. I think it does, even if you don't use those categories. Because you want to know, as a thoughtful, wise Christian, what it means to follow an objective gospel that has subjectively impacted your life. You want to know, how do I take, how do I understand the truth of God's word that has impacted my life experience in a way that is unique from every other person? And how do I share that good news with other people who may say, yeah, the Bible's not objective. And everybody's truth is their own truth. So when you can find enough proof to prove to me that the Bible's true, then I'll listen to you. But maybe not because, you know what, all the hucksters, as Bill told, told them, called them last week, all the hucksters in our society, they look like you. They say some of the things, same things as you. And so, you know, my assumptions about Christians are pretty much just based on who they are. And nothing you could say to me about proving the Bible's validity would make me think that you're legit when they're probably just as legit over there. I don't have a category for fitting you into all those other Christians. Let me give you a, a brief biblical illustration to help you think about this a little bit more. The disciples, do you know how, what they called themselves throughout the book of Acts? They continually called themselves witnesses to the resurrection. Okay? That's an experience. It's an objective experience, but it's an experience, so it's subjective in that way. It's those people, they saw the resurrection. 
But the thing is, their experience, their witness, what they called themselves, would have no power, would have no validity if there was not actually a resurrection. Okay? So, the powerful thing is, there was a resurrection, an objective reality, something they could bank on, something that they experienced and they saw, and when you mix those two things together, it was an explosive witness that changed the world. So where does that leave us? Paul and Silas gave the Thessalonians themselves, but they also gave them the gospel. That was their explosion. That was their explosion. What was the gospel they gave them? You can just listen to the passage from Acts 17 again. Here's what they said. He taught in the, in the synagogue on the three Sabbath days. He explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He reasoned with them. He convinced them that there was a necessity, there was a mustness to Jesus dying and rising again. And then he said, this Jesus who died and rose again Speaking to Jews, he spoke their language. He said, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah that you've been waiting for for generations and generations and generations. Jesus is him. But the Greeks hearing this hear, yes, he's the Messiah, which also means he's the king. So you have this one man, Jesus, as both king and dead teacher come back to life. It's kind of postmodern. It's kind of subjective because you see these people interpreting the objective Jesus in different ways based on their own feeling, based on their own motives, based on what they want to get out of the interpretation of who he is. Jesus does not allow for that. The Jews would not believe that the Messiah had to suffer. The Bible does not allow for that. Listen to Isaiah 53, if you would. This is about the Messiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You understanding the experience of the Messiah? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are objectively healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened up not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The experience of Christ brings objective, true hope to sinners. His death on the cross brings necessary healing, forgiveness for people who themselves cannot heal themselves or forgive themselves. Jesus experienced all of that suffering to objectively go to the cross so that we could then experience forgiveness because forgiveness is objective. It is true. It is real. It has been given to all of those who come to him in faith. But Paul did not just reason. He did not just convince them of the cross. He convinced them of the resurrection. And that's where Isaiah 53 continues. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall then see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his will, his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercessors intercession for the transgressors. Jesus lives. Jesus lives. <sighs> we didn't quite finish the passage. First Thessalonians 2. Verse 11, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Paul and Silas gave themselves and gave the gospel as a nursing mother. They then worked, worked, toiled with the gospel. And then as fathers, 
They spoke. Speaking as a dad, sometimes the hardest thing to do in your home is speak. It goes all the way back to Adam, fellas. He swallowed his tongue, and Eve swallowed the apple. But Paul and Silas were not like that. Paul and Silas saw the church growing, maturing on spiritual milk. And then they began to speak. That's one of the joys of having your kids grow up. I love babies. I love babies. But one of the joys of having kids grow up is to be able to speak with them in a way that is meaningful, in a way that is encouraging, in a, in a way that is exhorting. As awesome as it is to speak those words, you know what's even more awesome? When they come to you and say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about this. Would you speak into this for me? That's what's happening here. The Thessalonians put themselves in a place where they could grow, where they could hear, where they could be encouraged, where they could be exhorted, they could be charged. They put themselves in a posture of continuing to grow under the gospel that was being taught to them. So here's, here's something I want to challenge you with this morning. Some of you may just need to spend some time remembering. You have now been a Christian for so long that you have forgotten what it was like to become a Christian. You've gone through so much or you felt like you failed so many times that that seems like a day far, far away. What you may need to do is just spend some time, put it on your calendar, spend a half a day or a day or three days or a week or a month sitting with the Lord and saying, God, would you remind me of our history together? I know the gospel but I need to experience you again. I need to remember where our love started. You may not only need to remember, but you may also need to say, and I need to seek someone out as a son, seeks out his father. I may need to come and say, there are some things, some sin that I need to confess. There are some questions that I have. I need you to speak into these. I need you to tell me the gospel again and explain, explain to me again God's faithfulness to me.
I also want to encourage us as a church in two ways as well. In evangelism and discipleship, you know, when, a, when the world bombards our friends and family that don't know Christ yet with a false gospel and people that call themselves Christians but don't actually exhibit a transformation by the gospel, your life may be all that they see. But it's powerful. But would you consider, you might, you might be thinking of somebody at work right now or some, or, or a relative or even immediate family member that you're thinking of like, if there was one person in the world that I would, that I would love to see come to Christ, it would be him or her. Let me challenge you with this. Are you giving your life to them? You might be saying, I want to share the gospel with them, but I'm kind of hesitant to give my life to them. The thing is, the Lord may use the apologetic of your life to create an open door for the truth of the gospel. On the flip side, there may, some, may be someone that you have been giving your life to and giving your life to and giving your life to at home or at work or in some other way, but you have not yet come to the place of actually sharing the gospel. And they have seen your consistency of life. They have seen your love for them. They have seen the difference between you and all those others out there. Would you pray for an opportunity? They may buck. They may resist. The friendship may be ruined. But if you're gracious, if you're loving, guess who they don't want to ruin a friendship with? You. But you're not fully loving them until you actually fully reveal who you are. Fully reveal whose you are. You may say, well, I don't know how to do that. I'll just give you an example. You can go to, first, you can go to Acts chapter 17. Just say, ask that person. So, you know I'm a Christian. Do you know I'm a Christian? Um, you can go to that person and say, you know I'm a Christian. What do you think of me? How do you think of me in that way? Begin getting their insights. They might say, you know, I really appreciate you, but I don't get the whole Jesus dying on the cross thing. Oh, you don't? That's really your big hang-up? Can I take you to Isaiah 53? Because really the only reason that I'm, any, I'm gracious and loving towards you to any extent is because God's been gracious and loving to me. He's forgiven my sin and freed me up to be bold with the truth that I've experienced. Let them read it themselves. Let the Holy Spirit use his word to speak to them. Regarding discipleship, um, you know, we, we pray 
rightfully so, for people to come to faith in Christ. Um, I would even encourage you to, to put together a list of the lost you keep in your Bible. Who are the people that you're giving your life to already that need to hear the gospel? Make a list of the lost. These are the people that I'm praying for. And we should be praying for them? Yes, definitely yes. But I do want to challenge you with this. Paul and Silas didn't just pray for opportunities for the gospel. They stayed, right? They stayed, and they gave themselves a nursing mother. Um, when it comes to discipleship, we as a church pray for conversion, but are we ready for discipleship? Are we ready on the one hand to get into other people's lives and disciple them? On the other hand, are we ready to be discipled? Could it be that God withholds spiritual rebirth because we're not ready to be spiritual parents? Let's think about that. Is your life too busy? to be intimately connected with other believers in a way that is disciple-forming, Jesus-forming in them? If it is, it's too busy. We have opportunities right now with, within the church, within a Sunday morning context, to disciple babies, to disciple toddlers, to disciple fifth through seventh graders, to disciple teens, to disciple adults through gospel life classes. These are things that the Lord might be stirring in you. You know, oftentimes we, we talk about teaching those things, and teaching is correct, yes, but I think teaching puts it in a certain category that is not entirely helpful. Would you consider discipling someone else through teaching? There are opportunities for that. That is what Paul did as he exhorted, encouraged, and charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, he was exhorting them to keep walking. Remember what has happened and keep walking. God is faithful. He will carry you. You will endure. Be assured of that, not because of your own faithfulness, but because of him. Because, see, your story is not ultimately your story. Your story has a place within his story. He is calling all of us, you all, us all, into the story of his kingdom and glory. And the author of his story, the author of that story, does not fail to bring all the characters that are his to himself. We pray that we would fully participate in the grand story of our King as he calls his family to himself.